0: Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 27. So if you are new to us, we are going through the book of Acts, which is a 28-chapter book of the Bible in between the Gospels and the Epistles that highlights the early church movement of what happened when the church was birthed and different people that were involved in that. One of the main characters is the Apostle Paul. And this is detailing what happened to him when he was arrested in Jerusalem on a false charge that he was defiling the temple. He's gone from Jerusalem to Caesarea and is now on his way to Rome via a ship that has um, experienced a tremendous storm. And so it's about their survival. There might be some that think, well, why are all of these details of this trip a part of the Bible. Shouldn't it be just, you know, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that? And, and yet you realize that the, the Bible is depicting real-life events that took place in the early church. This is one of them. And there is much to learn, much to gather from this. So, Father, we invite you to be our teacher today in the midst of all this. And I, I ask that we would walk out different people, people that are changed, people that have been transformed. And so we thank you for your word and your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the closest I have ever come to disaster on water was on a fishing boat on Lake Erie. I grew up uh, near Lake Erie, and this was while I was in high school. A friend and I were on this little boat fishing for perch. We had probably caught 40 or 50 fish. We did a had a good day, but we're about a mile offshore and uh, a storm came in and it came in quick. Uh, and one is overcome by uh, two main thoughts when that happens. One is the enormity of the water that you're on. In my case, it was a lake. In Paul's case, it was a Mediterranean Sea. The other is the smallness of your vessel compared to the enormity of the water that you are on, all right? Now, in Paul's day, it was probably an Alexandrian grain ship that had been rented by Rome that he used. Those would range anywhere from about 140 to 150 feet long, about 35 feet wide, and they were not easy to manage, certainly not as easy as today's vessels. But they were struck by, I'm sure, two things as well the enormity of the Mediterranean Sea and the smallness even of that vessel compared to the sea. So what we see from this story is that when these storms and the waves hit, and of course, that's a a metaphor for all kinds of things that go on in our life. I know it can be cliche-ish, but it certainly is is true in in this case, that when you go through storms uh, in your own life, What can we learn? And what we learn from this is the content of their faith was radically filtered and clarified. And that's what we get too. And I hope that's what we see as we venture through this. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this journey and loss. Now we learn that these men were hungry and all for good reason. They were busy trying to survive a hurricane. One does not think about food when he is in survival mode in the middle of a hurricane. And Paul says, you should have listened to me. Now, I'm not so sure that Paul's statement was one of these, I told you so kind of things. Rather, um, there's two possibilities I'd throw out there as to why he's saying such a thing. One is that there's a difference from his warning in verse 10 where it was just his opinion, and then what happens in verse 24. In the first statement, Paul is just offering You know, I think we ought to stay here and bed down for the winter because, you know, this storm is going to be our, our, uh, not have a good end result, right? Uh, And then he says in verse 24 that an angel has come to him and delivered a message that they need to listen to and take heart in, that they're going to make it to Rome. Now, they didn't listen to him the first time, so maybe now that basically God has given me a personal message, you'll listen to this. Secondly, by saying that you didn't do what I recommended, Paul is implying that you cannot hold him responsible for their plight. You remember Jonah? Remember being on the ship and all the waves and everything? And everybody's pointing the finger at Jonah why are you running from God and all this is happening to us because of you? And so Paul, I'm sure it kind of has that story in the back of his mind. and saying, hey, I'm not to blame that we are going through this. I told you we should not be on this water and you didn't listen. So you're the guys responsible for this. And in Paul's case, God was not applying his retribution, like with Jonah, upon this boat. The last thing a prisoner needed before he got to Caesar was that he was liable for losing a boatload of people. So Paul did not want that on his head. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When he says taking heart, Paul is promising Protection and encouragement—that's to give them hope. And by believing God's promise, they can have those things as well. Now there is no need to fear. And I'm sure some of them are saying that's easy for you to say, Paul. I mean, uh, you may have God on your side. We're not so sure. We're in the middle of the storm, right? But God's promise can infiltrate our soul to the point of actually changing our perspectives. And attitudes. Think of that. God's perspective can infiltrate my soul when I'm in the middle of a storm. Now, the delivery agent of God's message was an angel, which confirms its divine origin. I don't know about you, but I don't, to my knowledge, have had an angel deliver a message to me. Janet is saying, well, how about me? I tell you things all the time, right? But we typically don't have an angel delivering a message, right? You, you uh, might think, well, we have Jesus. Imagine if Jesus was with us, right? I mean, you know, I may not have an a apostle or an angel, but if you're with Jesus, that would be good, right? Well, listen, Jesus had something to say about that, and it's quite interesting He's responding to the disciples who are all oppressed that he's going to leave them. And this is what was said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So there's this spatial and geographical presence of the Holy Spirit And the message seems to be that that's your best environment in your relationship with God. Jesus is saying, with me physically on the earth, I can only be at one place at one time, but with the Holy Spirit in you, and he dwells in each believer with the Holy Spirit in you, God will be with you wherever you go. But in addition to that, the Holy Spirit will testify of truth being in you. And in this world today, there is considerable concern, is there not, for who and what to believe, right? You have fake news and false equivalencies that are handed out like candy on Halloween. A false equivalency diverts attention from one topic by comparing it with another where there is no parallel in value or similarity. You know, in other words, it's comparing apples with oranges. And people are increasingly, all you gotta do is get on social media for 10 minutes to know this, people are increasingly enjoying creating their own echo chamber instead of being investigators for truth. Unwilling to listen Unwilling to consider anything against their opinion that challenges them. And in this environment, truth is hard to come by because what happens? We just throw up our hands. Nobody can know. I don't know what's true anymore. And so you have to be very selective into what you absorb. You know, personally, I have not watched a TV newscast In about three months, I get my news elsewhere. I'm not advocating putting your head in the sand, but I can't do it. Not for me, I'm not saying this is what you should do, I'm just telling you what I have done. I have taken Facebook off of my phone, which was my main delivery agent. I can get it on the computer, but you're on your, at least I am, I'm on my phone more than I am the computer. Um, What has this done? Well, I can tell you what it's done for me. It's made me a better receptor for God's truth because I want my heart to stay humble and less defensive, more engaging with God. I don't need people to join my personal fan club, okay? I need truth that relates to reality from God's perspective, that's what I need. And I want to create space in my own head and heart for that to happen. Because truth is under attack. Truth is under attack. I, d- I just heard uh, this week that on social media, there was a, uh, a challenge, an argument between some professors. One was even a math professor. You're going to think I'm making this up, okay? And I'm not, Okay whether two plus two equaled four, okay? Because such an equation, all right, is a postmodern concept that white Europeans who have created all the rules have, you know, garnered the truth, and we can't be subject to those people in power, okay? In, in, In our culture... And as a result, we have to deconstruct things and realize that each culture has their own truth. So even the concept of two plus two equals four is questionable. Okay? Just knock myself out and end it right now because I'm not sure my brain isn't going to explode. (laughs) That is what we're dealing with. So imagine... Now, see, I don't think that this is just, you know, the crazy train has arrived and it's in town, I think this is diabolical. Because then in that context, how about supernatural claims about who Jesus is? That's so out there that I can't even fathom that. Because I don't accept anything as true. Everything is just some construct, postmodern construct and a power grab. It's diabolical. So Father, please help my soul to be welcoming to the Holy Spirit speaking truth in my life. That's what I want. You know, could it be that while we're wishing for maybe our own personal muse or this or that in our life, that we have missed the already present Holy Spirit? To woos us to cut out some of the noise, to be more serious about taking a Sabbath, to take time to humble our hearts into this listening posture instead of a defensive, bloviating posture. What might the Holy Spirit whisper to us at the time of a storm. Here's one passage. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, moment, uh, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to notice that the work of God is doing a renewal in us. He's changing our value system to match kingdom values. And as I mentioned previously in another sermon recently, that We are holding with a looser grip when the Spirit is involved in our lives, holding to a looser grip with the things of the earth, and holding more tightly to those things that are eternal. Invariably, when I find my heart in misery, being tortured, I feel like, and, you know, great travail, I can find me holding on to things of the earth. I don't want to lose those things. I want to grab those things. And yet, the work of the Spirit is to let go. Not to say that we can't use, not to say that they're evil. But, you know, I love our home, I love my wife, I love our kids, I like a car that works. All right? But I don't want to grab onto those things that I have to have those things in order to have joy, delight, and contentment in this life. Because none of that is true. As much as I enjoy those things. So, Abraham Lincoln, you know his story. He lost some of his children. Um, He had a very difficult marriage. He was rejected by many for being a hick. And with 82% voter turnout, in the 1860 presidential election, he won with less than 40% of the popular vote. Now, I'm I'm sure if that were to happen today, you're gonna hear cries of change the electoral college and all that, right? Okay. But after his election, so think of that, if that had happened, he wouldn't have been president. right? But after his election, southern states made good on their threats and began seceding from the Union before he took office. And a month after, Civil War erupted. Now what made Lincoln such an effective leader during this incredible crisis? Here's one theory I want to throw out to you. Lincoln's intimate acquaintance with sorrow and hardship had prepared him for the kind of self-sacrifice that his presidency would require. And not everybody's willing to give that. So God used him to a greater degree because of his personal hardships. I was sharing with my son Brian uh, this week, who they found out they cannot have children. It's very grievous very hard to hear, Um, and, you know, even talk of adoption is not even close. They're just in the middle of grief. But it was this concept that was the idea that, you know, you probably can't see it right now, but somewhere down the road, God may give you an opportunity to really minister And you and your lovely wife will be the only ones in the room that'll know what it feels like and will be able to minister to those people. God is preparing you. Somehow, some way, he's preparing you. I'm struck by the last uh, phrase in verse 26. But before we get to that, I want to mention something out of Acts 23, 11. That's where God made his original promise that Paul would make it to Rome and Paul would testify in Rome. Yet circumstance after circumstance seemed to make this impossible. I mean, Paul was in Jerusalem and he wanted to go from Jerusalem to Rome. But instead, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was subjected to repeated trials. He was imprisoned in Caesarea. He was threatened to be killed, and then he nearly drowned in the Mediterranean. And each incident appeared as an obstacle to keep him from Rome, the God-given destination. Does any of that mean that Paul was on the wrong journey? No. He was right where God wanted him. And see, because of the obstacles in our life, we can often surmise that God has us on the wrong boat. And we get this idea that if we're obedient to God's will, following God's playbook for life, it's going to be smooth sailing. I love how all these metaphors fit on this sermon, all right? But we know But that is not the case. And verse 26 says, after giving assurances for God's message and their safety, it's like Paul just drops this giant dose of reality, but we must run aground on some island. I'm not even sure which one, but I know we're going to run aground somewhere. I mean, God's going to keep his word, but it's not going to be easy. God is sovereign and he loves you, but you are going to run aground. Don't we wish sometimes that God would just leave verse 26 out of our lives? I'll be in your marriage, but your relationship is going to have severe challenges. I will supply what you need, but there are going to be times where you're short on cash, where you might get cancer. I will use your church, but COVID, mask wearing, race issues are going to stretch you like they never have before. The promises of God continue. And so do circumstances that demonstrate our need of Him. We must run aground. There will be trouble. It should be on every church marquee, but we don't advertise that way. Join us, you will run aground. It's told that on one of his voyages in the 1500s, the crew of Sir Humphrey Gilbert's ship were terrified. They felt that they were sailing right out of the world through the mist and storm and the unknown seas. And they had asked him to turn back in this one particular venture. And he wouldn't do it, and this is what he said. I am as near to God by sea as I ever was by land. great. There's trouble here. I'm as near to God during this time that I am on the safety of land. And see, faith is this. The man or woman of God believes God is present and his promises are still good when the storms come. It's faith. I may not know how it's even going to turn out. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, and they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Now, the the Adriatic was a term used in New Testament times of north-central Mediterranean between Crete and Malta. I think we have a... Do we have that... uh, Do we have another slide that has, there we go. So you can see uh, the Adriatic right there by that ship there, okay, or called the Adria there. Um, 14 days had passed from their stop from Fairhaven. That's not been the total trip. That's about the halfway point, okay? And, And near Malta was Point Cora with breakers that were audible from a long distance off and some surmise that that was what the sailors were hearing to tip them off that they were near land. Now a fathom was basically a six foot stretch or your, your arms hand to hand span. So by attaching a weight to a line so for a sounding as, as they called it they could measure that they were first 120 feet depth and then later a 90 foot depth. So they verified they were getting closer to land. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Fearing that they would run into rocks, they let four anchors down from the back of the ship. And by doing so, they faced The ship's front or bow toward the shore to keep it from being damaged broadside if it were to hit the rocks. I mean, you get the sense that there's this feeling of desperateness in this situation. And they're praying for day to come. And some of the crew thought that they were on the down low by telling people, you know, we'll just let these anchors down over here when it was apparent to everybody else that they were getting that dinghy or small boat attached to the ship and they just wanted to scat out of there. Everybody knew what they were doing. Let's notice that those who were there to lead the ship, to protect the ship, wanted to abandon the ship. Paul makes clear that you sailors have a job to do. You're to lead this ship to greater safety. And without your skill here, what happens? Well, we're at a great disadvantage. So if you jump ship, we're in trouble. More trouble than what we're in. I've already mentioned, I think these are some of the greatest challenges a a church can face. And I think it's a time for us to show great faith As we continue our outreach, and as a a staff, we're wanting to make 2020 one of our best years in terms of what we involve, and why we, I mean all of us, in terms of ministries and outreach. We want it all hands on deck. So while the church is in need, everybody, pull their weight. Our mission, our outreach, our all systems go. So let me tell you what one option is for us. It's not quitting. That's not an option when it comes to kingdom work. Now, I mean, by that I mean kingdom work, not necessarily this particular church God can move people on, but we're talking about quitting, being participants in the kingdom. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, in this world, in this world, you will have safety. In this world, you will have plenty of money. In this world, your political party will always be the one in power. In this world, all relationships are cool. No. In this world, you will have, you know what it was? Trouble. Trouble. Trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus still has the power to calm every storm, but he does not immunize us from every problem. Sometimes he miraculously delivers us, and at other times he gives us the courage courage to endure. the Nigerian city of Joss sits at Africa's great fault line between the Muslim central, uh, the Muslim north, excuse me, and the Christian south that has faced terrible conflict in the last decade. And in 2013, a Nigerian Baptist church was attacked by Muslim extremists who burnt the church building, and the house of the church's leader, Pastor Sunday Gamna. Great name for a pastor, Sunday. (laughs) On the second Sunday after the violent outbreak, when the people of the Baptist church returned for worship, they gathered in a little mud wall community center about one kilometer from the burnt church building. Pastor Gamna stood up And he offered some beautiful words of gratitude and hope. This is what he said. First, I am grateful that no one in my church killed anyone. Apparently, after the chaos of the attacks, Pastor Gamna had gone around the community and some of the Muslim people said, Pastor, thank you for the way you taught your people. Your people helped to protect us. So Pastor Gamna was proud that his people did not kill any Muslims. Second, he said, I'm grateful that they did not burn my church. And everyone gave him a weird look. After all, they were in some uncomfortable hut and their church was just down the road, all burnt. But Pastor Gamna continued, inasmuch as no church member died during this crisis, they did not burn our church they only burned the building. We can rebuild the building, but we could not bring back to life any of our members. So I'm grateful that they did not burn my church. And he continued. Third, I'm grateful that they burned my house as well. If they had burned your house and not my house, how would I have known how to serve you as pastor? However, because they burned my house and all my possessions, I know what you are experiencing and I will be able to be a better pastor to you. So I'm grateful that they burned my house as well. And don't you get any ideas about that, okay? All right. I have an alarm system. Cameras ready. Let us be transformed into this kind of a Christian who in the midst of tragedy and a pandemic see their values and perspectives radically aligned with the kingdom of God. That is really living that is what people stand up and say i want some of that because i don't have that let's pray